An elderly spinster pays an awful price when she discovers people boinking in the woods. We're talking Midsummer. Murder. And the weirdness that is the Rainbirds on this, the very first episode of... Welcome to Midsummer. And welcome to Midsummer, the podcast where we dissect all the mysteries, the murders, and the many weird things about the long-running hit TV show, Midsummer Murders. I'm your host, Eric Busher, and with me as always is my co-host, Eileen Becker. Hi, Eileen. Hey, Eric. This is it, our first episode, and we are very excited to be discussing Midsummer with you. Every month here on Welcome to Midsummer, Eric and I will be discussing a random episode, the plot, the characters, the crazy ways to murder someone, and the (laughs) hidden dangers of quaint English villages. For our first episode, we decided to discuss the one that started it all, Episode 1, The Killings at Badger's Drift. Written by Anthony Horowitz and directed by Jeremy Silberston, it originally aired 25 years ago, March 23rd, 1997. Joining us to discuss this episode, we have a very special guest. She is a best-selling novelist and the Ellery Queen award-winning editor for mystery fiction. And she is a huge Midsummer fan. Please, we want to welcome Juliet Grames to the show. Hey, Juliet. I cannot tell you how excited I am to be doing this today. This is this is my bailiwick, uh, Eric and Eileen. <laughs> so thank you for inviting me. I'm just totally honored. We're so uh, happy to have you. When did you first discover Midsummer? Oh, Eric. Well, what a question to ask me. <laughs> I, If I may have the floor just for a moment, I need to tell you my very personal Midsummer story here because it involves, a, you know, <clears throat> no boinking in the woods or murder, but it uh, definitely is a, a sordid story that we should tell from, from beginning to end. So, okay, I don't know when this was. Maybe seven or eight years ago, I came home from a long day at work. Um, and my now husband, uh, was not there. He was out doing something else. I don't know. We work together. Um, as I think, you know, he's, he also works in publishing. He's a book publicist. So we spend most of our time together. So I thought, oh, I'm going to turn on my Netflix and I'm going to indulge in one of my foibles, perhaps the Great British Bake Off or a (laughs) rom-com of some kind. You know, I know. So I turn on Netflix and it's under recently watched. The top hit is this British procedural I had never heard of called Midsummer Murders. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Paul must have been watching this when I was in home, which was a little surprising to me because usually I would find kind of really low budget 1980s sci-fi horror would be what he would be secretly watching when I'm not home. You right. know? So this happens a couple more times over the course of like a month or two months. I come home and I always find Midsummer Murders at the top of the queue. And I start to worry actually, because Paul and I spend all of our time together. So I'm like, what is he doing? Is he getting up in the middle of the night to watch Midsummer Murders when I'm not there? Because I had never seen an episode of this show. So finally, one day, uh, I, I come home and Paul is there and Paul is looking a little bit distressed. He comes out of the kitchen and I see that the, the TV is on and like Netflix is about to uh, have been selected. And the top hit on Netflix is, of course, Midsummer Murders. And he says, you know, he's trying to joke. You can see, but he's like, hey, so Midsummer Murders. And I was like, yeah, so Midsummer Murders. And he's like, do you want to talk about this? And I was like, yeah, do you want to talk about this? And and that's <laughs> when we realize. That we had accidentally left my Netflix logged in when we had visited my parents' house. So they had, because there had been 
200 hours worth of Midsummer murders that had been watched over the course of about a month. And Paul and I are both like, when we're turning on the TV, we're like, how well do we not know our partner here? Where is she finding 200 hours to watch this show? And and oh, should I be concerned about the state of my relationship right now? So it, it kind of became a running joke for us. Um, so we had to sit down and we had to watch Midsummer murders for ourselves to see what this whole, uh, you know, shtick was about and, and thus began the rampant addiction of Midsummer murders in the greater Grames Oliver family. <laughs> it, it is a show that has, brings people together. Uh-huh. Yes. And it, it forces families you to, together. you know, really scrutinize your marriage and see how well you know your partner. And is your partner really the person you want to watch Midsummer murders with? And luckily the answer is almost always yes. This is why I stick with cats. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to jump in with a quick recap of the first half of this episode. Spoiler warning, we will be discussing the events of this episode, including the identity of the murderer. So if you haven't watched it yet and don't want to know who done it, pause this and go watch it. We will still be here when you get back. Is that what Emily Simpson saw? Two people bonking. Retired school teacher Emily Simpson rides her bike through the village of Badger's Drift on her way to the local forest. She's in a competition with her friend and neighbor Lucy Bellringer to find and photograph a rare orchid. She thinks it's her lucky day when she stumbles upon the orchid, but then she also stumbles across two people having sex in the forest. We don't see them, but Emily gets an eyeful and it freaks her out. She races back to her cottage and calls the local helpline for some advice. She then tries to get a Brighton phone number, but she's interrupted by someone entering her cottage. I'm Detective Inspector Barnaby, and this is Detective Sergeant Troy. DCI Tom Barnaby and Sergeant Gavin Troy arrives at Emily's cottage to investigate her death. Coroner Dr. George Bullard informs them that Emily died from a broken neck, possibly from a fall, but scuff marks indicate the body was moved, and Bellringer tells detectives that she is convinced this is foul play. Outside the cottage, they meet local undertaker Dennis Rainbird, who is attempting to collect Emily's body. Dennis is a little over the top, especially when he drives off in his Porsche with a license plate reading RIP1, leaving the officers to wonder how an undertaker can afford such a car. Next, the detectives visit Emily's physician, Dr. Lester, who says she was fine for her age. When asked where he was at the time of her murder, he says he was at the hospital, a lie that his daughter, Judith, immediately calls out. Next, he claims he was watching cricket while his wife, Barbara, was out shopping. Judith stomps off to meet Michael Lacey, local artist and her maybe boyfriend. After Barnaby leaves, Barbara gets a phone call blackmailing her for 500 pounds. Barnaby visits the helpline where he learns that Emily was disturbed by something in the woods, but she never said what. Troy brings Barnaby the autopsy revolts, proving that Emily was murdered. He also developed her photos of the orchid, which leads them into the woods searching for the flower. They find it in a space where they deduce Emily saw some people boinking on a blanket. They pay a visit to the Rainbird's abode, where we meet Mama Iris, the village blackmailer. She says she saw Catherine Lacey, Michael's sister, in the village on the night of the murder. Catherine is just days from marrying the wealthy Henry Trace, whose first wife, Bella, died under strange circumstances. Later that night, Dennis brings home the blanket that the murderous lovers tried to destroy. Mom is so happy because this is the big payday that they celebrate with some really weird, gross kissing. Barnaby heads home to his wife, Joyce, and his daughter, Cully, who is visiting from college. Over one of Joyce's terrible dinners, Cully informs them that she has the lead in a play at school. Dinner is interrupted by a phone call from the helpline operator. She remembered that Emily said the phrase, just like poor Annabella, but didn't know what that was about. 
Barnaby and Troy drive over to Ty House, home of Henry Trace, in sight of the upcoming wedding. Trace is in a wheelchair due to polio, and he recounts to the detectives the events of Bella's death during a pheasant shoot two years prior. Pretty much all our suspects were present, including Bella's sister Phyllis. Bella injured herself when she stumbled over a root, and as she was being escorted home by Michael Lacey, she was shot. Michael ran across the village to call an ambulance. Was it tragedy or something worse? They then talked to Catherine Lacey, who first says she wasn't in the village, but then recalls she went to post a letter, taking her tiny yappy dog Benji with her. They also chat with Phyllis, who is very freaked out by the sight of police, but claims it's because she hasn't paid her car tax. Even Troy doesn't fall for that one. Next, they head over to interview Michael at the Lacey's cottage on the grounds of Ty House. Henry became the twins' ward after their parents' death and let them stay there. Michael has a studio where he works on a mysterious painting that he doesn't let the detective see. At Simpson's funeral, everyone turns up to see the fancy satin service. Afterwards, Barnaby and Troy visit Bell Ringer. She tells them that the Lacey's old nanny was Emily's best friend. She took care of the twins, but their constant fighting finally drove her to leave. Bellringer suspects Catherine of Emily's murder, but when she hears Catherine had the dog with her, that rules her out because the dog would have caused too much noise and given her away. At their home, the Rainbirds enjoy a cart of fancy treats to celebrate a funeral well done. Dennis answers a knock at the door, and just as he says, oh, it's you, he's stabbed in the neck. Then the unseen killer stabs Iris to death. Woo! That's a lot that's happened so far. So but let's step back and discuss how Midsummer got Murders got made. This is the very first episode. Uh, it's... Based off novels from the author Carolyn Graham, her first book, The Killings at Badger's Drift, actually won the 1989 McCavity Award for Best First Novel, and it was named one of the top 100 crime novels of all time by the Crime Writers Association. Graham actually wrote six more novels featuring Barnaby, the first five of which were adapted as the first five episodes of the series. To prep for this, I actually read The Killings of Badger's Drift. Have either of you read the book or familiar with the series at all? I have not read the book. I have to say, this is probably one of the most faithful adaptations I have seen. Most of the material of the book is in the show. Some mild tweaks, which we'll get into a little bit later. But everything is there, even down to the weirdness that is the Rainbirds. That is almost a literal translation from the page to the screen. I was shocked. I thought there was going to be a lot more changes made for television, and they really didn't. So... Carolyn Graham is a real twisted name. (laughs) Eric, I'm so curious because, of course, this episode was scripted by Anthony Horowitz, who is, you know, also a a household name in crime fiction, especially recently. Were you able to see his specific hand on the screenplay at all? It's hard to say. I haven't read a lot of Horowitz to really see the difference. A lot of this, a lot of the dialogue and stuff like that, again, comes straight from the book. I would say, like, there's certain additions. Like the dream sequence was be, I think was probably all him, but no, it, it, I think he did a fairly good job of capturing Graham's voice, which, you know, as a, as anyone will tell you, that's a hard thing to do for, for, for anyone adapting material is, is capturing the voice. And like I said, I wasn't sure how much was going to be there, the difference between the book and the show for a while there, I thought it was probably Horowitz's influence, uh, but no, this is all Graham's baby. They really did follow her. Talent. What a neat thing. Yeah. Well, the series was optioned by television producer Betty Willingate, and she'd worked on series such as I, Claudius, The North and South, The Mayor of Casterbridge. And you'll see that several actors who appeared in these shows also appear in Midsummer Murders. And she's also the one who so perfectly cast John Nettles as Tom Barnaby. So huge kudos there. Uh, she stayed they- connected to the show until 2019, 
and passed away in 2021 at the age of 93. So she was working into her 90s. In 2013, when it came time to name John and Sarah Barnaby's daughter, they named her Betty in Willing Gates' honor, which I thought was just a very wonderful thing. Yeah, I, going back to again to talking about like the book, Barnaby is described as sort of a bearish body type with nettles. They physically lucked out in that he, I wouldn't say he's imposing, but he's and he's not barrel chested, but he's he's a big dude. He conveys so much through. I mean, yes, his his physicality and his the way he acts the role is just it feels so perfect for this part. The thing I was really struck by is how he acts with this area of his forehead right around his eyes. He has this ability to crinkle his eyes and move his eyebrows to convey just so much power in this rather laconic role, right? Um Barnaby is just one example of incredible characterization that we get in this pilot, right? And I also just think it's so cool how so many of the characters we see in bit parts here go on to have explosive careers elsewhere, much like, you know, now Horowitz is a household name as a writer. But uh, I mean, come on, Emily Mortimer, like in the role of Catherine, uh, like seeing her in this kind of baby face 1997 moment is, um, is, is really neat. Can I just point out the actor who plays Michael, Jonathan Firth, Colin mm-hmm. Firth's brother. Yep. But for me, the real scene stiller here is Elizabeth Spriggs, who is, I, I just, um, you know, she plays the, the role of Iris, the blackmailer. I love that actress so much. She is, I don't know if you guys have seen the 1995 Sense and Sensibility. So in that, Elizabeth Spriggs plays the role of Mrs. Jennings, steals basically the entire movie. You cannot take your eyes off that woman when she's on the screen. I love her so much. For me, when I was like, this was obviously where, you know, I started watching Midsummer, And I was like, oh, well, this is a little darker. A little, And then Dennis Rainberg comes on the screen, marvelously played by Richard Kant. That's the moment I would go, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> This they it's such a beautifully I can just imagine the casting of just like he comes in, he does it. No, no, can you do it way over the top? Just go as <laughs> go as big as you want. It, and it works. And it's that's when I kind of realized this show is weird. You know, I was thinking this was gonna be a very uh murder she wrote style show, and it is, but then it's also much weirder. The performances by Spriggs and Kant as the Rainbirds are fantastic. Uh, Spriggs not only did Sense and Sensibility, Eileen, you what you did some research on her, what else did she do? She has done uh, Bergerac, which was John Nettles' series set in uh, on the island of Jersey. She did Doctor Who, the casebook of Sherlock Holmes. She was the original fat lady in the portrait that guards the entrance to the Gryffindor Tower in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, Sadly, she did pass away in 2008 at the age of 78. But John Nettles did say that she does vicious better than anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that they both brought, you know, her and Kant back for the 10th anniversary episode as they basically just said, well, we killed the Rainbirds. So here's their identical twin cousins. This, this is, you know, I was watching very good. to prep for this recording. I was rewatching with my mom, you know, as I mentioned, the person who dragged me into midsummer addiction in the yeah. first place. And we're sitting there and she, she says to me very like, you know, she's worried about me. She's like, oh, don't worry. They're dying right now. But these they're going to come back because the actors are so good. I'm like, come on, mom. Spoiler alert much. But 
It's just like. (laughs) Kant, funny enough, is also, you know, he's been in a number of things like Doctor Who, uh, The Crown, but he's his dad was a well-known presenter of children's television doing shows over there called Play School and Dapple Down Farm. And can't you just imagine Dennis Rainbird hosting a children's show? Oh, my God. (laughs) With his little cart of sweets. (laughs) He is definitely, Um, though, Eric, as you said, he is what anchors you in this world. You know, first of all, you know it's going to be over the top, and then how self-aware yeah. he is about when he delivers that line. Like, how do you know that it was a neck thing, right? He goes, "Well, everyone yeah. knows by now it's that sort of village." I mean, he sets up <laughs> it's the premise for the whole series, and you're like, "Thank you, Dennis Rainbird." So you do suspect some naughtiness? <laughs> yes, yes. There's some other notable cast. Uh, I just want to call out that Henry Trace. Uh, is played by Julian Glover. A lot of people will recognize him as Grandmeister Pizel from Game of Thrones. He appeared in everything from the Avengers and Doctor Who to Magnum P.I. He's played baddies in The Empire Strikes Back, For Your Eyes Only, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where in that one, much like Henry, he chose poorly. Well, we've discussed Emily Mortimer, though my fun fact for her is that she is the daughter of Rumpel of the Bailey author John Mortimer. And we've discussed Jonathan Firth, who is the uh, brother of uh, uh, Colin Firth. Uh, He has uh, also done several other things. He's been on Inspector Morris, Poirot, Father Brown. So he's got his mystery cred there. Uh, And Lord Byron in the Highlander, the TV series. (laughs) He also did several direct-to-video sequels to The Prince and Me, which I did not know had that many direct-to-video sequels. There is a number of them. Yes. I may have watched a few of them. On Netflix on those nights before I discovered Midsummer Murders. So. <laughs> I think, Good I binging. Think, <laughs> I think we need to do a little call out to Renee Asherson, who plays Midsummer's very first murder victim, Emily Simpson. She had a very long career. She's performed with Olivier and Gilgood in their production of Romeo and Juliet. And she was Beatrice to Robert Donat's Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing. She actually became Donat's second wife. Her very last role was Old Lady in the Nicole Kidman film, The Others. She also passed away uh, in 2014 at the age of 99. You know, if we're doing one more call out, another scene stiller, I don't know this actress, but Mrs. Bellringer. I thought, oh, Rosalie, Rose, you know, yeah. she, you just fr- from the one in that opening sequence where you see her picking up the cigarette butt and with that sneer on her face. And then she has that amazing high, high, high class accent in this village. And she's guiding the detectives through the, the bones of what really happened. I mean, she's she's great. She's great. She uh, she's a standout for me in this. And I, w- I she's almost a Miss Marple character, but a bit mm, more stern. Yeah. And I could see her almost doing a series. Unfortunately, this was her last role. She did die in 1997 at the age of 77. She appeared in Quo Vada. She did two versions of Tale of Two Cities where she played Madame Defarge in both. And then she played Catherine Parr in the acclaimed miniseries, The Six Wives of Henry VIII. And this is a, a real thing that Midsummer finds these great character actors and actresses and really makes the best of them throughout their... Yeah. Sometimes it's their final role, but... <laughs> Uh, I want to point out that Jessica Hines, who is here as Jessica Stevenson, uh, playing uh, Judith Lessiter, she's had a long career doing drama and comedy. She's won two BAFTAs, but a lot of people know her and love her as the co-creator and co-writer and co-star of the cult classic series Spaced, which launched the careers of Simon Pegg and director Edgar Wright, who would go on to direct uh, 
directs Simon in Shaun of the Dead, where Jessica has a fun little cameo as well. And I also got to point out that Christopher Villiers, who plays David Whiteley in this, um, he's one of the only Midsummer characters who actually comes back as himself in another episode. He actually comes back in the season two opener playing David Whiteley. Uh, spoiler alert, he doesn't survive that one. <laughs> Lastly, I want to point out Selena Cadell, who plays Phyllis, the, the sister in the attic kind of thing. Um, she's probably best known for her portrayal of Mrs. Tischel in the long-running series Doc Martin, where she is really a standout character there. In 2008, she also appeared in the season 11 episode Midsummer Life, where she ended up, unfortunately, in a dryer. <laughs> <laughs> this episode really sets the template for every episode. Like There really is no variations uh, uh, from this template. Uh, it's your typical quaint English village. There's usually some kind of festival or group or weird, weird event. There's one murder case that will always evolve into a double or triple homicide. Um, I mean, Eric, since you bring it up, have you, have you mm-hmm. folks done the math on what the statistical average body count in an episode is? And what's, what's the swing here? Like, what's the lowest body count? And what's the highest? The lowest um, body count is actually zero. Wow. What- and maybe one. It depends on how you interpret it. Uh, but I think... There's some that have like six, and uh, I think yeah. six is the highest. I, ca- I, I count did do- seven in this. In this, uh, is it okay if I spoilers are fine? Right, we've got Emily. No, that's fine. Sure. Oh, yeah. We've got Emily. We've got Bella Trace. Um, mm-hmm. We've got Dennis mm-hmm. and Iris Rainbird. That was quite gruesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phyllis, I mean, you could say that she was in fact murdered by the circumstances because although she was driven Mm -hmm. to suicide, as we learned, she wasn't even a killer. So her guilt was fake. And then of course we have Catherine and Michael in a rather interesting uh, culminating execution style scene, which I think we should talk about the, like the Kurt Cobain kind of, how do you shoot yourself with your own rifle um, aspect of that? But I think maybe that's for a later moment in the, in the podcast. We'll get that. We'll get to, we're going to, we're going to come back to, there is so much about this murder, the actual murders we're going to hit on when we, when we hit the second half, I will say is that that's the, this weird thing of midsummer is that it's always, there is no such thing as a single murder. It always develops into there's another murder and usually another murder. The the murder rate for Midsummer would have to rival Detroit in the 80s <laughs> because just per capita that is a that is statistically a lot. Like I can't in America your average detective show, right? It's like they 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 spend an hour trying to solve one. Yeah. <laughs> like Cabot Cove which would, would probably be the, again, the murder she wrote is probably the American equivalent of Midsummer Murders. Only had one murder per episode. And that was a lot considering 50% of that show took place in a small main village. Mm. Where- but the thing is, Midsummer is an entire county, at least. It is, it is not a, a single village. It is a county of psychopaths. <laughs> it is a county of psychopaths. But let me let me let's discuss Midsummer here a little bit since this okay. is the first episode. So let me set it up a bit. It's it is a fictional county in England. It's not far from London. The scenes for the show are filmed mainly in Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. If it were real, it would be located to the west of London, sometimes vaguely to the northwest. In pre-unified Britain, because I'm a history buff, it would be in the Kingdom of Wessex, with some parts possibly overflowing into Mercia. 
it's not far from Tem, which often doubles as Corston. Now, Badger's Drift is a village that is located to the south of Corston and is the setting for six episodes. It has won the best kept village in Midsummer Honor six times, as we see in that first shot. It has a lovely old church with an appropriately creepy churchyard. In future episodes, we see a village fete. Yes, someone dies. A rock music festival. Yeah, someone dies. And a biscuit fi- factory. Well, someone is almost killed, but they get rescued at the last minute. <laughs> it is a seemingly idyllic village. Quaintness personified. In reality, it is a festering hellhole of blackmail, incest, betrayal, gossip, and murder. In other words, a typical midsummer village. Let's look at the first murder and just... Why didn't she lock her door? She she ran all the way across this village, freaked out. She clearly knew something was wrong. Lock the door? <laughs> you think it would be second nature. I know for most women, it actually is to lock a door, whether it's your car door, your house door, your apartment door. You just get into that habit of locking a door. But I guess she was so intent on calling the National Health Service helpline that she forgot. But... And that is a weird thing to do after you see two people, you know, committing incest in the woods is to call the National Mental Health what, Service helpline. What do you think the menu is for that? <laughs> <laughs> if you if you feel depressed, press one. If you feel if you feel suicidal, press two. If you've seen a brother and sister having sex in the woods, press three. <laughs> I also um, want to comment, though, before we move on from that opening sequence, on the fact that we we, we home in on, on Emily's door as she's running through, and it says, Beehive Cottage. And then we get a pan out where we see this enormous domicile. I, I, I love that this tiny old lady lives in a quote-unquote cottage, and, and it's just like, I would specially lock my door if I were her, because it's, it's huge. huge. It's, it's a huge house. <laughs> For a little old lady, retired school teacher, I can't imagine they got paid a whole lot. You know, lot. if she had survived this episode, I bet we could have excavated some dirty secrets in her past that explained why she lived in such an enormous domicile. But, you know, it, it she she knew everything about her. Didn't we? Also, <laughs> also, let's let's not forget this is it's an extraneous detail in this episode that like in other episodes, this would be a clue or something like that. But she keeps bees like they're actually. <laughs> yes. She has like it's a bee cottage. Yep. There are bees yep. there. There is that crazy line of just where Bellringer's like that she needs to inform the bees that someone has yep. died. I still haven't told the bees. And that is actually an old tradition that happens uh in Europe, especially in England. It's a very popular thing in England, and it actually comes up again in a in the later bee episode. Well, it's funny as in the book, like she says that line, and then you know, Barnaby is like, What? Yeah. And then she explains, no, no, it's an old European custom. In here, she says the line, and they're just like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after the murder, we get our first appearances of Barnaby and Troy. Uh, Troy, of course, played by Daniel Casey. Uh, Troy, we will see for the next six seasons. Uh, this was kind of one of his first big roles. He'd been in a few, made appearances in a few other things. His first appearance in anything was he was uncredited uh, in Cracker as a policeman. But man, Troy, <laughs> as much as we see him evolve over the years, what an awful human being he is in this first episode. 
you kind of got to agree with Dennis Rainbird. I see you've got a right constable there. Right <laughs> constable. <laughs> I just love the scene when we first see him in that eye-jarringly orange shirt with the triple striped tie. He's got that purple and red striped tie. I'm like, oh, Troy, I, I get you. And my mom, who's sitting there again with me watching, he, she has to warn me before he gets in the car, oh, by the way, you should know Troy is a very bad driver. I'm like, well, the camera tells no lies, mom. We can see him swerving all over the road. <laughs> I mean, in the book, uh, again, like they actually lightened Troy up a little bit for the show. In the book, he's really kind of hoping Barnaby fails. He thinks Barnaby is completely wrong all the time. He's kind of a, a an obsessive jerk. And here he's just, you know, he's homophobic. He's kind of an incompetent. He's doesn't he but he sets the template, you know, his job is to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So Barnaby can correct him. <laughs> One gets the idea that this is Troy's first week. <laughs> and if it's not, he hasn't learned a whole lot yet. <laughs> and then, of course, we, and as you said, it's like we, we meet him in comparison to the Rainbirds. That way they say, he says, Constable with a U. <laughs> they got we, away with that one. <laughs> they got away with it. Like even, even Nettles was like, yeah, we got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of incest in this episode, mm-hmm. but it starts off with the, like the rainbirds. Sort yeah. of, it's almost like the rainbirds are so gross at it, so that when you see the Lacys later on, it goes, "Well, that's what normal incest is supposed <laughs> to look like." <laughs> Here's my question about the rainbirds. So, as we've discussed, Midsummer has drops. There's a lot of bodies are dropping in Midsummer. Yeah, undertaking must be an incredibly lucrative business then. Why do they need to blackmail anybody? <laughs> it's a good question. I uh, I always think it never hurts to have a little extra income. <laughs> a little side hustle. I mean, he got a Porsche with a personal license plate. I'm just saying. <laughs> but he could have, look, he could have afforded that with the cost, like with the funerals from just the bodies in this episode. Well, he did give Miss Simpson the a discount for the satin service because she taught his mom. So. Also, my other question is: So is that tray just constantly full we in their house? We have to talk about the-, the tea tray. I, I was, I was like, when is this going to come up? <laughs> yes. I, I, I couldn't even. The did someone cut each of those tiny sandwiches into a club formation before smearing it with what was it, anchovy or marmite or something? Also, yes. what is an iced sombrero? But also, like, when does he prep that? Like, does he get up at, like, four in the morning, make all these little sandwiches, the ice sombreros and all that stuff, and then just in case somebody pops over? They have a full afternoon tea. I, this is a full afternoon tea they do. And apparently they do it every day. And it may also be, though, that may be their sort of, like, office for their blackmailing when they're inviting a client in. You know, it's because we do – we see that in one case, right, when, when Phyllis comes for tea and they have the gun, the rifle on the tea tray. Yeah. So maybe that's just part of their whole business. You know, it's important to uh, make the clients feel at home before you hit them up for 5,000 pounds. And I think the reason you do see them come back, they miss an opportunity when they – like, because as an undertaker, this guy could have popped up in multiple episodes as just weirdo information so brokers. Fun fact: in the book, Dennis survives. Oh. Only Mama is. Mama gets murdered. Dennis is supposed to be murdered, but he comes home a little too early for the the Lacey's plans, and he just finds his beloved mother there with her head almost cut off, and he goes catatonic, and he is catatonic from like the second half of the book. Wow. On. Hmm. When they killed them, I was sad yeah. because they were such great characters. Yeah. yeah. 
I actually think that is a really important moment, the the slashing moment, um, because it's another, this is a bar that uh, that this series is setting for us. I think this is gets to the core of what the stickiness about Midsummer Murder is, why we come back to the series over and over. It's because it is a safe place for us. So, so we have that incredibly stylized, like a less realistic depiction of violence I have never seen in my life. And I've seen a, a lot you know, <laughs> as a crime fiction editor. And, and this is where, you know, if it sounds like I'm being sarcastic about any of these aesthetic choices in, in this uh, series, I'm not, I'm absolutely not. This, this is why this genre works. It's a place of safety. We know we're never going to get realistic violence um, this is a form of of sort of a fantasy where we can have murder mysteries and puzzle mysteries that are unfolded in a world that is not like our own, where seven people may be murdered in a tiny village and where everyone is sort of a psychopath. We don't have to delve too deeply into the real human psychology behind the mysteries, but we can still get the, the, the craft of the puzzle as it unfolds. And to that end, we need to feel so safe in these moments where, you know, the violence will be incredibly stylized, unrealistic, where we get those musical cues that we come to rely on. Like, you know, the opening sequence has that gorgeously campy, amazing theme song. You hear it and it yeah. gets your blood pumping because you're like, I'm about to be wickedly entertained with a murder mystery that will not gross me out. And um, and I, I think the killing of the rainbird sets our expectations for what will unfold over the next how many? 129 episodes? Before we get to the sec, we break for the second half. Um, I just want to point out this is also our introduction to the Barnaby family. And a rarity for mysteries, it's a happy, healthy family life. <laughs> it is. It very much is. And of course, a lot of that is set by John Nettles as Barnaby, but also his wife, Joyce, who's played by Jane Weimark. Before being abandoned by her TV husband at every restaurant in Ben Summer, which is the only... <laughs> sticking point in their marriage. Weimark appeared in Rob Roy, the original 1970s Poldark, Pie in the Sky, which I love, and A Touch of Frost. Since midsummer, she's been mainly retired, though she did appear in an episode of the Jean Renault crime drama, Joe. The big thing, the big character, the trait that comes through for Joyce in this episode is the cooking. Uh, later on, it's later on over the series, it's she's always taking a class. But yes. in this, it's the her that Joyce is and they don't quite, they never quite say it out loud. In the book, it is described as she is an atrocious cook, <laughs> that she is a maker of abominations in the kitchen. That's amazing. Um, here, it's always just implied with looks. Um, when Cully brings home the Marks and Spencers. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> amazing. Um, <laughs> that classic line, you can't go wrong with Delia Smith. And Barnaby's yeah, face is just kind of going, eh, I think you can. <laughs> I think you can challenge <laughs> um, Barnaby Bar and the rule, the constant rule of the show is that you never get to see Barnaby have a full meal. Yeah. He never gets to, he never gets to finish eating anything. We meet Cully played by Laura Howard. She is, she appeared in a show called So Haunt Me before this and a drama series called Soldier Soldier. Since Midsummer, she's appeared in Casualty Called the Midwife and Young Dracula. What's interesting is that she's named after the place in France where Joyce and Tom had their honeymoon, Cully in France. I've always felt that Cully is sort of an underwritten character. It, she's sort of defined by her constant, like the first few seasons, it's she wants to be an actress. And then after that's radically shifted. And she just, she seems to be constantly defined by 
she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. Well, she's always trying to be an actress. It just never seems to work out too much. So she has to take these other side jobs. But again, it's, I think it's it's nice to see a happy... It's interesting to see a, a, it's a healthy home life. The Barnaby mm. is a relatively healthy individual. He does not... He is not dark or brooding. He's not, you know, he's not self-destructive. He's not a lot of tropes of detective fiction. He's not even really kind of a jerk. Yeah. He turns down a drink when when Kali offers him one. So it's like, well, he's not the alcoholic detective that's become such the uh, cliche. The last character we haven't talked about yet, who's a regular, is Dr. George Bullard, the pathologist, played by Barry Jackson. Jackson, again, is another one who's had a long career. He appeared in so many things on TV and in movies. He pretty much retired from acting after he left Midsummer, and he passed away in 2013. He doesn't get a lot of screen time here, but over the course of the season, he does fulfill a major function, which is uh, info dump. Let me give let me give Barnaby a huge chunk of info uh, to cut some time <laughs> out of this episode. <laughs> You always need an info dump character in a mystery, though. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break here, for, and we'll be back in a, a little bit for with our second half of Killings of Badger's Drift. And we're back. Let's take a look at the second half of the Killings of Badger's Drift. Looks like Emily Simpson was murdered after all. I'm amazed, Troy. Barnaby and Troy arrive at the Rainbirds, where Bullard tells them that it's one of the worst scenes he's ever been to. Mama's head was almost cut clean off. Upstairs, the detectives find their blackmail operation, including tons of journals, binoculars, and cameras. Unfortunately, the killer has already torn pages out of the most recent journal, hiding their identity. The cleaning lady tells them she saw Catherine Lacey at the Rainbird's doorstep just before she discovered the bodies. The detectives sneak on over to the Lacey's cottage to catch them unawares. They overhear the twins having a huge fight over Catherine's wedding that ends with both of them storming out. Barnaby decides to enter the cottage without a warrant to have a little look around. However, they don't go into the studio, which would require breaking the door down. That's a little too much. They return to Ty House, where Catherine says, yes, she was at the Rainbirds, but only to deliver some mushrooms. But they aren't really there to interrogate her. Going through the Rainbirds journals, they find evidence that Phyllis killed Bella. Phyllis admits it instantly, and they arrest her. She had been in love with Henry and decided to get Bella out of the way. So on the day of the shoot, she got drunk on vodka to steady her nerves, and when she saw Michael walking with Bella, she fired. The Rainbirds found out and blackmailed her. But she didn't kill them. She had already been bled dry. Sure, because no one has ever murdered anyone for revenge. They also drag in handyman David Whiteley, who the Rainbirds had discovered was having an affair with Barbara Lesseter and was blackmailing her. However, Whiteley and Lesseter were together when Simpson was killed, so they each cover each other's ass. I mean, alibi. They did luckily witness Michael Lacey at the Rainbirds' door just before they were murdered. With a warrant to search the cottage, the detectives find the bloody knife in the studio. Lacey claims they planted it and makes a run for it, getting tackled to the ground by Troy in the only useful thing he does in the entire episode. As he's driven away, he sees Catherine and tells her he's been framed using the most obvious box symbol in the world. Next is a bizarre dream sequence where Barnaby attends the wedding and all the clues and the suspects are there and his brain tries to make sense of it, causing his head to start shaking like he was a bobblehead. He is woken up by tragic news. Phyllis has killed herself in the jail. Barnaby angrily blames himself and his mood isn't helped when Michael, after spending the night in jail, suddenly reveals he has an alibi for the murder. He was with Judith Lassiter all day. Barnaby's no dummy. He realizes that Michael was trying to keep him from seeing the secret painting, 
a painting that is now missing from the studio. Barnaby thinks he has it worked out, and he takes Troy down to Brighton for a fun beach day and to get some answers from the former nanny, Mary Sharp. Through tears, she tells Barnaby about raising them while dealing with their constant screaming matches. But she felt that something was odd about the fighting, and she was proven right one night when she witnessed the twins in bed together. And they weren't fighting. She retired and moved to the seaside rather than tell anyone about the incest, as she still loves them and doesn't want to hurt them. Barnaby drives them back and gives Troy and us the reveal. Michael and Catherine have been in it together the whole time. Catherine murdered Emily, trying to make it look like an accident, giving Michael her dog to hold so it wouldn't bark. She also killed the rainbirds dressed as Michael, then changed her clothes and made sure she was seen knocking on the door, but unable to get in. It was all an elaborate plan to throw the detectives off the scent. Have all the evidence point to Michael, but when he has a clear alibi, it means he was set up. All their arguments were faked as well. They've been at this for a while, as they were also responsible for the murder of Bella Trace. Phyllis only thought she shot Bella, but she was drunk and missed, mistaking Bella stumbling over a root as her being shot. Then Michael walked Bella right to where Catherine was waiting to shoot her. All of this is an elaborate plan for Catherine to eventually marry Henry and take his money over his dead body. Unfortunately, the nanny calls Michael to warn them. Michael runs and grabs Catherine and takes her to their secret bonking spot, where they die in a murder-suicide. Barnaby finds the missing painting, an erotic portrait of Catherine. Finally, what was that thing about Annabella? Barnaby doesn't know and assumes he never will, until he attends Cully's play, where she plays a woman named Annabella, involved in incestuous romance with her brother. Realizing what Emily was saying, Barnaby has himself a little laugh at the totally wrong time. So, this is a very convoluted murder plot. <laughs> it is very convoluted. And it's the thing is, is that for something that is played off as being a spur-of-the-moment plot, it's very elaborate. And one has to wonder where the dog was while they were bonking in the woods, because he had to be around somewhere, If she, because there wasn't enough time. I mean, Emily Simpson goes straight back to her house, doesn't even bother locking the door before she calls the Nash, National Health Service mental health line, and then she starts starts to call Brighton. That's a very short amount of time for them to get this whole thing together. You know, Catherine clearly is a murderous individual that she can come up with these plots pretty quick. I mean, the it wasn't long between the Rainbirds starting to blackmail them and they just kill them the next day. Which, by the way, yeah. the Rainbirds already suspect that they're involved in something that probably was involved in Metbully's murder. Why would you open? You wouldn't even open the door, let them in. <laughs> well, maybe they thought she was bringing money. Um. I do also appreciate how Dennis kind of dramatically bleeds across the foyer, walking back <laughs> to his mom before collapsing. You think he could have like put up some other kind of alert, knocked down a vase or a vase, excuse me. I don't I don't know. I, I had questions about that as well. But I think we just have to accept that Catherine is a very charismatic murderer and she's just able to pull off this violence with a plum. She certainly does. I love the way she gives that look before she pulls the knife out of the basket. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little sassy. Yes. <laughs> it's a little sassy for murder. There's a lot of incest in this episode from the Rainbirds to the Lacys. But even if you think about it, that, that Henry Trace is their ward. That's mm-hmm. technically, he is the parent surrogate. Mm-hmm. And he is marrying what's technically a person that he's a good raised. Point. Good yeah. point. And Phyllis was in love with her brother-in-law, yep. Henry. Yep. Yeah. Good point. Also, the whole thing, too, about Michael Lacey, like the whole, f- 
I'm going to make it look like Michael. And then, which by the way, they don't quite explain it in the, in the show, but in the book, it's because Michael Lacey constantly wears a denim jacket and a cap. Like you, and you see her wearing the cap in the show, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing that indicates that this outfit is Michael Lacey. They yeah. don't look alike. <laughs> Maybe at some previous time. <laughs> well, what's interesting to me is, is there's some, and I think there's just some editing things, which you will appreciate, Juliet. <laughs> some errors. The housekeeper says she comes on Tuesday mornings and Friday afternoons, which if you really pay attention to the timeline, the only way she could find the Rainbird's body after the funeral is on a Friday afternoon, which means a week goes by with nothing happening because Emily Simpson is murdered on the previous Wednesday, not the the Wednesday before. So there's a whole lot of time that goes by. So you kind of have to adjust your brain that says, well, maybe it She's there on a Tuesday afternoon instead, or a Monday afternoon, which would make a lot more sense because that way the timeline actually works. I don't know if this is an editing error, uh, but I was very confused by the painting that's discovered at the end that is apparently revelatory because it shows, it illustrates the incest between brother and sister, but does not to me look even remotely like Emily Mortimer. Yes. Um, so yes. <laughs> It it looks first of all it looks like it's got a very Lucian Freud quality yeah, to yeah. it, uh-huh. but it doesn't look like her at all. No, also, in fact, maybe more like Judith Lesseter, if anything. Yeah. Like yeah. the eye color is what really yeah. stuck out to me. I'm like, yeah. Anyway, why paint that? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if you're you're an you're like an artist and you have to make art. You're involved in a complicated murder plot. Yeah. That this would <laughs> give it away. My take is that he needed something while she was married to Henry before they killed him to, I don't know, maybe jerk off to while she was. <laughs> uh, but also, when you rewatch this episode knowing who the killer is, and then you hear mm-hmm. when Emily discovers them having sex and you hear the sex sounds in the forest, it's clearly Michael Lacey. Like every other male character in the show's voice is is two octaves lower. <laughs> it's clearly Michael Lacey's voice. Today, though, Emily would have had an iPhone with her instead of the, a camera, and she would have taken video. Case solved right away. <laughs> so, I, I I do think it's just kind of going back to the incest that this inc- incest becomes a frequent motif. I can at least think of like th- four or five episodes where incest plays a big part of it. Why so much incest in Midsummer? <laughs> Insert joke about that kind of village. <laughs> I think we should look a little bit at some of the detective work here. The illegal search of the cottage. Yeah, there you go. Yes. <laughs> also the weird sneaking up. Like I just like, we're creeping up to hear the fight. <laughs> I don't know how they knew we were coming. There's a mirror. It's yeah. not even a subtle mirror. That's a pretty, that's a traffic mirror. Yeah. I do though appreciate when they find um, Iris's journals that we see, we see Barnaby up late at night going through and trying to you know pick through the details. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's like, this is a joke in crime fiction, right? That, that the actual detective work is incredibly boring, like gumshoe work, door to door, boring questions, asking them again and again. Um, the realism of solving crime, which is so rarely depicted in crime fiction. Um, and then I, I love 
maybe my favorite moment in the whole show is when Cully asks him, like, well, how's the case going, Dad? Is it murder? And he goes, well, it's certainly a lot of hard work. <laughs> I sing, Barnaby. Yeah. <laughs> Great. There's a point where Barnaby's talking with Kali and Barnaby kind of admits that it's good that the Rainbirds were murdered because it's better for solving cases because it gets everything turning. I thought that was kind of a weird thing for a, a murder detective to talk to, to admit. Yeah, I thought it was a little bit psychopathic, especially, you know, he says in that conversation, I don't have any emotions about this, right? And um, it's... <laughs> It's which is, you know, maybe a way of capturing the realism of of this life where you have to divorce in the way that a surgeon cannot think about the body as, you know, the person, but in fact the the you know, what they're working on, the detective must divorce him or herself from the fact of the violence if they want to intellectually address the problem that they've been paid to address. But also more broadly, let's talk about rampant psychopathy in midsummer okay mm-hmm. let's talk about the fact that phyllis when, when we see her murder her sister we get the play-by-play of how she commits the murder but we never like really drill down on what makes a person decide to murder their sister like that's the real question yeah. here right yeah. i i i think that that's like part of the thing that you just have to um accept that we're going to see a lot of people die by violence and that we're not going to dig too deep into the human motivations or else we're going to have to reveal that everyone in this county apparently is a little bit of a psychopath. By that sort of statement, like they literally could just like, DCI Barnaby, there's been a body. It's like, well, I'm going to get some tea and some lunch somewhere. Let me know when a second body is dropped. No, because then we'll be able to. Obviously, the lunch will be, have to be cut short. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. definitely. Because <laughs> we'll get a, some sort of revelation in the middle of it. Of course, if he'd run lines with Kali, he could have solved this whole thing much sooner. There you go. Because, and I want to talk about his pity, she's a whore for a minute. This is a play that's written by John Ford and was first performed around 1629 to 1633. And to put him in a historical context, he was born about 40 years after Shakespeare. The play centers on an incestuous relationship between a brother named Giovanni and a sister named Annabella, which if was the character being played mm-hmm. by Cully was Annabella. So if Barnaby had had run the lines, he would have gotten the Annabella thing. But wait, he she ran lines with Joyce, right? She did run line with, with And Joyce. Joyce knew about Annabella. Barnaby mentioned it to Joyce. Either, either Joyce was just like, I'm having fun because he's going to run out <laughs> on dinner sometime. So screw him. <laughs> I'm just going to keep this from him and make his life harder. Or Joyce would have to be real dumb. And as we've seen, Joyce ain't dumb. No, no. But anyway, it's a very complicated plot. There's a lot of characters. She has all these suitors. She marries this rich guy. The incest is discovered. He actually kills her. And then he goes out with his her heart on a knife. And her husband... Like goes after him and has all of his thugs go after him. So Giovanni basically commits suicide by cop kind of thing. Obviously, this is a very controversial play because of its subject matter. And it's the Victorians were just like totally in a swoon over it because they could not they changed the title of the play. They left it off of his list of of plays and and in books and would not include it. On the mid-20th century, it it started getting a little bit uh looked at again and people have realized that it's a very complicated play there's a lot that's that's very passionate about it and powerful about it even though it's still very unsettling 
but the fact that Giovanni, who's this talented noble man, is committing incest with his sister, and and she's portrayed very sympathetically as well, was really very controversial for centuries, basically. So in the book, Kali is barely in the book. She only kind of really appears at the end of the book where they do go see the play. And that's where they like put the two and two together. Like it's, oh, Annabella, now I get it. And then that scene at the end where where Tom, where Tom just is having a little chuckle at the scene <laughs> where like the, like the brother and sister are kissing. <laughs> Very inappropriate. So we were talked a lot about the template. But there are a couple things in this episode that we never, we don't really see again in Midsummer, or they get dropped off the show very quickly. Number one, the title cards. Mm. Um, yeah, with a quaint little village with a little cat that goes through it. Yeah. yeah, there's also that point halfway through the show where where Barnaby's driving to the funeral and he re- starts reviewing the suspects. In case you haven't been watching the last like in case, <laughs> the last hour, here's how it goes. Uh, you know, was it this doctor or was it his daughter? I was like, why are you telling this to Troy? Troy should know all this. <laughs> it is Troy's first week. <laughs> In my mind, at least. <laughs> and then uh, the dream sequence. Oh, yes. Amazing. Oh, when you get the the first like notion that it's the dream sequence is that those popsicle sticks with the red mm-hmm. ribbons tied yeah. in her bouquet. And, and bouquet. I, my my initial reaction is horror. I'm like, what? She cut those orchids? <gasps> but then <laughs> then it starts to sink in. Oh, this isn't really happening. My first reaction was like, wait, who invited them to the wedding? <laughs> My first thing was the red bouquet, all those red ribbons mm-hmm. dripping down like blood. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot more blood imagery in this than we get in a normal, yeah. you know, especially later on, Midsummer episode. The rainbirds in the background, paler than normal. Catherine does go ahead and wears that bright red scarf to Emily's funeral, which I thought was a mm-hmm. little ostentatious of her, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Barnaby's, like, Barnaby's whole thing at the end with that weird head shaking yeah. Like like he's out of scanners or something. It was just <laughs> You know, this was like this dream sequence might as well have just been, hey, can you figure it out? <laughs> here's every here's 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 clues you here's clues you didn't even realize were clues. I think the last big question I have just thinking about all of this was how old do you have to be for a nanny? Yeah, that's the thing that struck out to me. When the nanny was saying Michael was 18 and Catherine was 17. And I was like, they still had a nanny. I just don't think Mary Poppins would have stuck around that long. <laughs> I mean, and then at the end, the fact that she calls them to warn them. Yeah. We don't really plumb that one, do we? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I get it. She loves them and she wants to save them from getting arrested. But like, what was, she, like, I guess that at that point, what were they going? Like, I, I understand. That's like the one thing that kind of made sense to me in the, the the whole thing. I was like, yeah, they're busted. Like they they can't run. They got no money. If they get arrested, they'll never get to be together again. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way out, I guess, is to to. And then of course they're just like, nah, we're too late. They're they're probably yeah. dead by now. Yeah, and we don't even get to see poor Henry's reaction. <laughs> it seems a little bit irresponsible to not at least try to track them down because who knows? They could have gone on another murder spree, spree killed another seventeen people. But they could, you know. It could, I mean, we could have gone natural born killers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But then just there's like, yeah, they're probably they've probably killed themselves. It's like they could have made a run for it. What the? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, Barnaby's, 
deep knowledge of human psychology that lets him so confidently make that, uh, you know, deduction. I mean, at least just go down the road a little bit. Maybe you'll see, you know, Michael Lacey just (laughs) (laughs) try doing some of that weird running, trying to get away. Yeah. Um, they, you know, at least one last bonking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, in the book, the murder of Emily Simpson is with Hemlock. Um, they try to pass it off that, uh, Mm. um, that because Hemlock looks a lot like parsley, I guess, or, or like an herb. So they, they were trying to pass it off that she poisoned herself accidentally. And then they, they also take Hemlock to kill themselves at the end. Oh, interesting. You know, and, uh, you know, they point out in the book that hemlock takes a little while. So they could have, like, you know, decided to take some hemlock and go out one last bonk. Yeah. (laughs) I was hoping they were going to use poisonous mushrooms. Like, that's what I was hoping that basket had been introduced for in the first place. They saved that for another episode. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What are our final thoughts on the killing of Badger's Drift? Juliet, you're the guest. What are your final thoughts about this as a as a as an episode or as it's as a launching pad? Well, I wish there had been more badgers. Not a single badger. Nary a badger. That's my only complaint. I really yes. think that, you know, in as I said before, we have in very good humor, poked a little fun at some of the uh, formulas that and conventions that the series sets up for us. But I think that it operates at the very highest level for the genre that it is, which is this safe space of crime fiction, entertainment, puzzle mystery. Um, obviously very addictive, uh, just makes you want to go and watch another one tonight and probably maybe two more tonight. I mean, I see how my mom ended up mainlining 200 hours worth of this in one month, thereby causing <laughs> me and my husband to question our relationship. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's, it's just, um, also a creature of its time. It has in many ways, late nineties stamped on it. There, there's so many aspects of this filming that wouldn't have happened in the exact pattern that they did happen if it were being made today. And, and I think that this is also kind of the burgeoning moment of when this genre takes off the impact of this series on the rest of British crime fiction, which then becomes world crime fiction can't be overstated right so yeah i mean welcome to midsummer let's have a little more murder i love it i i think it's unlike a lot of pilots where they make so many changes afterwards all the elements are there the cast is there all the elements are there they take out a few things you know and and you know streamline a few things but for a first episode it's amazing how the whole world has already been set up. Mm-hmm. Midsummer is what it is. We know what's going to happen in every other village in Midsummer because Badger's Drift has already set the template for it. I, I agree. I think this is like this is actually one of the st- stronger pilots because Carolyn Graham created such a strong template with the books, and the producers really just seem to understand intuitively by centering it on a warmer detective with a happy home life. We're not stuck in this sort of like the like weird brooding detective that just you can't get 25 years with a miserable guy. Mm-hmm. Like he, you have to have you have to have that kind of strong core. And I think the other thing that really the Rainbirds kind of highlight is the weirdness to it. Like mids, what makes Midsummer Midsummer is the weirdness at its heart. It's the weirdest episodes of Midsummer that always stand out. That always mm-hmm. that that people keep coming back to one other thing i just i think it also sets up is the great 
cast that it brings in for each episode, all these great character actors, and you have these great Shakespearean trained actors, eventually you get the Mark Williams, you get the Honor Blackmans, you get the David Warners and the Edward Foxes and the Simon Callows. I mean, these are good, good character actors. These are named people. These are people you have seen in some of your favorite movies and they're on Midsummer Murders. 50% of it is John Nettles is, is, is Detective Barnaby. He is, they found like just found a winning combination with him in this material. I, I would say this is easily one of the top episodes of the series. I think it's important not to undersell the production value of this though, because I, it's one of the things that makes, you know, it is, it is self-aware in it's weird and, and the, the creative team behind this episode, they went, they went to the sky on every single, like they took everything to its, uh, you know, upteenth possible limit. Um, I mean, when you first meet, um, when you go into the neighbor's house and, and we see her line of mugs along her mm-hmm. uh, escritoire or whatever it is. And and I, I just thought to myself, wow, the detail that they're bringing to bear on this scene development. Even later in the studio sequence, when they're, um, when they're breaking into Michael's studio and we see onions drying along the pillars outside of his uh, door, I, I just thought, who was making these tiny detailed decisions? Like th- there, there was so much thought and craft that went into every scene that we get to see um, and appreciating those details as part of the fun of this. Mm-hmm. Someone spent time thinking about it and, and refining it in this way that is, it is not, this is not a lo-fi tropey murder mystery. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is, it's, it's a project. Uh, yeah. Many creatives brought this project to us for our appreciation. There were so many elements that could have gone wrong and didn't. It is. I think it is a fantastic launching pad for, for Midsummer Murders. And it's a fantastic launching pad for us. And I'm glad we had so much to talk about. I want to thank Juliet Grahams for joining us. Juliet, please pimp your stuff. Tell everybody where they can find you, what you're working on. What, uh, they, what Tell about your fantastic novel. <laughs> Thank you, Eric and Eileen. I've, this has just been so much fun. I am a crime fiction editor at Soho Press. Um, if you like to read crime fiction as much as you like to watch it on TV, we have some fantastic, specifically British procedurals for you to check out. So um, I'll briefly stump Mick Heron. You should check out Mick Heron's uh, Slough House series because it will be airing on Apple TV starting this spring, starring Gary Oldman and my personal favorite, Kristen Scott Thomas. So, I mean, if you, if you just want funny British crime fiction, go ahead, Nick Heron, start with slow horses. I will plug that. Um, And I think Eric, you're trying to let me generously trying to let me plug my own novel, the seven or eight deaths of Stella Fortuna, uh, which is not a crime novel, but I'm working on a crime novel now. So I hope I'll have that to offer you in, in the next uh, you know, four to five years. I want to thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank all of everyone for listening to us. Uh, if you had anything you wanted to discuss about the killings in Badger's Drift or Midsummer Murders in general, please feel free to email us at welcome to midsummer at gmail.com. We're also welcome to midsummer on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us or rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Uh, that would really help people find us and tell all your friends about it. Uh, we're going to be back next month. Uh, and so we will hope you will join us again for that one. And as we take the road out of Midsummer, we want to thank you for listening and remind you that in Midsummer Worthy, 
answering the door can be murder. And it probably is. <laughs> Welcome to Midsummer is produced by Eric Busher and Eileen Becker. All clips in this podcast are used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Our logo and podcast art was designed by Smeedray. Our theme music is by the infamous Space.